section two of a far country by winston churchill this librivox recording is in the public domain book one chapter two i must have been about twelve years of age when i realized that i was possessed of the bard's inheritance a momentous journey i made with my parents to boston about this time not only stimulated this gift but gave me the advantage of which other travellers before me have likewise availed themselves of being able to take certain poetic liberties with a distant land that my friends at home had never seen often during the heat of summer noons when we were assembled under the big maple beside the lattice fence in the peter's yard the spirit would move me to relate the most amazing of adventures our train for instance had been held up in the night by a band of robbers in black masks and rescued by a traveller who bore a striking resemblance to my cousin robert breck he had shot two of the robbers these fabrications once started flowed from me with ridiculous ease i experienced an unwanted exhilaration exaltation i began to believe that they had actually occurred in vain the astute julia asserted that there were no trained robbers in the east what had my father done well he had been very brave but he had had no pistol had i been frightened no not at all i too had wished for a pistol why hadn't i spoken of this before well so many things had happened to me i couldn't tell them all at once it was plain that julia though often fascinated against her will deemed this sort of thing distinctly immoral i was a boy divided in two one part of me dwelt in a fanciful realm of his own weaving and the other part was a commonplace and protesting inhabitant of a world of lessons disappointments and discipline my instincts were not vicious ideas bubbled up within me continually from an apparently inexhaustible spring and the very strength of the longings they set in motion puzzled and troubled my parents what i seem to see most distinctly now is a young mind engaged in a ceaseless struggle for self-expression for self-development against the inertia of a tradition of which my father was the embodiment he was an enigma to me then he sincerely loved me he cherished ambitions concerning me yet thwarted every natural budding growth until i grew unconsciously to regard him as my enemy although i had an affection for him and a pride in him that flared up at times instead of confiding to him my aspirations vague though they were i became more and more secretive as i grew older I knew instinctively that he regarded these aspirations as evidences in my character of serious moral flaws, and I would sooner have suffered many afternoons of his favourite punishment, solitary confinement in my room, than reveal to him those occasional fits of creative fancy which caused me to neglect my lessons in order to put them on paper. 
loving literature in his way he was characteristically incapable of recognizing the literary instinct and the symptoms of its early stages he mistook for inherent frivolity for lack of respect for the truth in brief for original sin at the age of fourteen i had begun secretly alas how many things i did secretly to write stories of a sort stories that never were finished he regarded reading as duty not pleasure he laid out books for me which i neglected he was part and parcel of that american environment in which literary ambition was regarded as sheer madness and no one who has not experienced that environment can have any conception of the pressure it exerted to stifle originality to thrust the new generation into its religious and commercial moulds shall we ever i wonder develop the enlightened education that will know how to take advantage of such initiative as was mine that will be on the watch for it sympathize with it and guide it to fruition i was conscious of still another creative need that of dramatizing my ideas of converting them into action and this need was to lead me farther than ever afield from the path of righteousness the concrete realization of ideas as many geniuses will testify is an expensive undertaking requiring a little pocket money and i have already touched upon that subject my father did not believe in pocket money a sea story that my cousin donald ewan gave me at christmas inspired me to compose one of a somewhat different nature incidentally i deemed it a vast improvement on cousin donald's book now if i only had a boat with the assistance of ham durrett and tom peters gene hollister and perry blackwood and other friends this story of mine might be staged there were however as usual certain seemingly insuperable difficulties in the first place it was winter time in the second no facilities existed in the city for operations of a nautical character and lastly my christmas money amounted only to five dollars it was my father who pointed out these and other objections for after a careful perusal of the priceless i had sent for i had been forced to appeal to him to supply additional funds with which to purchase a rowboat incidentally he read me a lecture on extravagance referred to my last month's report at the academy and finished by declaring that he would not permit me to have a boat even in the highly improbable case of somebody's presenting me with one let it not be imagined that my ardour or my determination were extinguished shortly after i had retired from his presence it occurred to me that he had said nothing to forbid my making a boat and the first thing i did after school that day was to procure for twenty-five cents a second-hand book on boat construction the woodshed was chosen as a shipbuilding establishment it was convenient and my father never went into the back yard in cold weather 
inquiries of lumber yards developing the disconcerting fact that four dollars and seventy-five cents was inadequate to buy the material itself to say nothing of the cost of steaming and bending the ribs i reluctantly abandoned the ideal of the graceful craft i had sketched and compromised on a flat bottom observe how the ways of deception lead to transgression i recalled the cast-off lumber pile of jarvis the carpenter a good-natured englishman coarse and fat in our neighbourhood his reputation for obscenity was so well known to mothers that i had been forbidden to go near him or his shop grits jarvis his son who had inherited the talent was also contraband i can see now the huge bulk of the elder jarvis as he stood in the melting soot-powdered snow in front of his shop and hear his comments on my pertinacity if you ever want another man's missus when you grows up my lad god help him why should i want another man's wife when i don't want one of my own i demanded indignant he laughed with his customary lack of moderation you mind what old jarvis says he cried what you want you gets i did get his boards by sheer insistence no doubt they were not very valuable and without question he more than made up for them in my mother's bill i also got something else of equal value to me at the moment the assistance of grits the contraband daily after school i smuggled him into the shed through the alley acquiring likewise the services of tom peters which was more of a triumph then than it would seem tom always had to be worked up to participation in my ideas but in the end he almost invariably succumbed the notion of building a boat in the dead of winter and so far from her native element naturally struck him at first as ridiculous where in jehoshaphat was i going to sail it if i ever got it made he much preferred to throw snowballs at innocent wagon-drivers all that tom saw at first was a dirty coal-spattered shed with dim recesses for it was lighted on one side only and its temperature was somewhere below freezing surely he could not be blamed for a tempered enthusiasm but for me all the dirt and cold and discomfort were blotted out and i beheld a gallant craft manned by sturdy seamen forging her way across blue water in the south seas treasure island alas was as yet unwritten but among my father's books were two old volumes in which i had hitherto taken no interest with crude engravings of palms and coral reefs of naked savages and tropical mountains covered with jungle the adventures in brief of one captain cook i also discovered a book by a later traveller spurred on by a mysterious motive power and to the great neglect of the pons asinorum and the staple products of the southern states i gathered an amazing amount of information concerning a remote portion of the globe of head-hunters and poisoned stakes of typhoons of queer warcraft that crept up on you while you were dismantling galleons when desperate hand-to-hand -hand encounters ensued little by little as i wove all this into personal adventures soon to be realized tom forgot the snowballs and the maddened grocery men who chased him around the block 
while grits would occasionally stop sawing and cry out ah say frequently adding that he would be goddamned the cold woodshed became a chantry on the new england coast the alley the wintry sea soon to embrace our ship the sawhorses which stood between a coal bin on one side and unused stalls filled with rubbish and kindling on the other the ways the yard behind the lattice fence became a backwater the flapping clothes the sails of ships that took refuge there on mondays and tuesdays even my father was symbolized with unparalleled audacity as a watchful government which had up to the present no inkling of our semi-piratical intentions the cook and the housemaid though remonstrating against the presence of grits were friendly confederates likewise old cephas the darkey who from my earliest memory carried coal and wood and blacked the shoes washed the windows and scrubbed the steps one afternoon tom went to work the history of the building of the good ship petrel is similar to that of all created things a story of trial and error and waste at last one march day she stood ready for launching she had even been caught for grits from an unknown and unquestionably dubious source had procured a bucket of tar which we heated over a fire in the alley and smeared into every crack it was natural that the news of such a feat as we were accomplishing should have leaked out that the yard should have been visited from time to time by interested friends some of whom came to admire some to scoff and all to speculate among the scoffers of course was ralph hambleton who stood with his hands in his pockets and cheerfully predicted all sorts of dire calamities ralph was always a superior boy tall and a trifle saturnine and cynical with an amazing self-confidence not wholly due to the wealth of his father the ironmaster he was older than i she won't float five minutes if you ever get her to the water was his comment and in this he was supported on general principles by julia and russell peters ralph would have none of the petrel or of the south seas either but he wanted so he said to be in at the death the hambletons were one of the few families who at that time went to the sea for the summer and from a practical knowledge of craft in general ralph was not slow to point out the defects of ours tom and i defended her passionately ralph was not a romanticist he was a born leader excelling at organized games exercising over boys the sort of fascination that comes from doing everything better and more easily than others it was only during the progress of such enterprises as this affair of the petrel that i succeeded in winning their allegiance bit by bit as tom's had been won fanning their enthusiasm by impersonating at once achilles and homer recruiting while relating the odyssey of the expedition in glowing colours ralph always scoffed and when i had no scheme on foot they went back to him having surveyed the boat and predicted calamity he departed leaving a circle of quaint and youthful figures around the petrel in the shed jean hollister romantically inclined yet somewhat hampered by a strict parental supervision 
ralph's cousin ham durette who was even then a rather fat boy good-natured but selfish don and harry ewan my second cousins mac and nancy willett and sam and sophie mcelary nancy was a tomboy not to be denied and sophie her shadow we held a council the all-important question of which was how to get the petrol to the water and what water to get her to the river was not to be thought of and blackstone lake some six miles from town finally logan's mill pond was decided on a muddy sheet on the outskirts of the city but how to get her to logan's mill pond cephas was at length consulted it turned out he had a colored friend who went by the impressive name of thomas jefferson tolliver who was in the express business and who after surveying the boat with some misgivings for she was ten feet long finally consented to transport her to tidewater for the sum of two dollars but it proved that our combined resources only amounted to a dollar and seventy-five cents ham durrett never contributed to anything on this sum thomas jefferson compromised saturday dawned clear with a stiff march wind catching up the dust into eddies and whirling it down the street no sooner was my father safely on his way to his office than thomas jefferson was reported to be in the alley where we assembled surveying with some misgivings thomas jefferson's steed whose ability to haul the petrol two miles seemed somewhat doubtful other difficulties developed the door in the back of the shed proved to be too narrow for our ship's beam but men embarked on a desperate enterprise are not to be stopped by such trifles and the problem was solved by sawing out two adjoining boards these were afterwards replaced with skill by the ship's carpenter able seaman grits jarvis then the petrol by heroic efforts was got into the wagon the seat of which had been removed old thomas jefferson perched himself precariously in the bow and protestingly gathered up his rope-patched reins folks allow us plumb crazy drivin dis yere boat he declared observing with concern that some four feet of the stern projected over the tailboard as she topples i'll get to heaven quicker'n a bullet when one is shanghaied however in the hands of buccaneers it is too late to withdraw six shoulders upheld the rear end of the petrol others shoved and thomas jefferson's rickety horse began to move forward in spite of himself an expression of sheer terror might have been observed on the old negro's crinkled face but his voice was drowned and we swept out of the alley scarcely had we travelled a block before we began to be joined by all the boys along the line of march marbles tops and even incipient baseball games were abandoned that saturday morning people ran out of their houses teamsters halted their carts the breathless excitement the exultation i had felt on leaving the alley were now tinged with other feelings unanticipated but not wholly lacking in delectable quality concern and awe at these unforeseen forces i had raised at this ever-growing and enthusiastic body of volunteers springing up like dragon's teeth in our path after all was not i the hero of this triumphal procession the thought was consoling exhilarating and here was nancy 
marching at my side a little subdued perhaps but unquestionably admiring and realizing that it was i who had created all this nancy who was the aptest of pupils the most loyal of followers though i did not yet value her devotion at its real worth because she was a girl her imagination kindled at my touch and on this eventful occasion she carried in her arms a parcel the contents of which were unknown to all but ourselves at length we reached the muddy shores of logan's pond where two score eager hands volunteered to assist the petrel into her native element alas that the reality never attains to the vision i had beheld in my dreams the petrel about to take the water and nancy willett standing very straight making a little speech and crashing a bottle of wine across the bows this was the content of the mysterious parcel she had stolen it from her father's cellar but the number of uninvited spectators which had not been foreseen considerably modified the programme as the newspapers would have said they pushed and crowded around the ship and made frank and even brutal remarks as to her seaworthiness even nancy inured though she was to the masculine sex had fled to the heights and it looked at this supreme moment as though we should have to fight for the petrol an attempt to muster her dowdy buccaneers failed the gunner too had fled jean hollister ham durette and the ewans were nowhere to be seen and a muster revealed only tom the fidus achates and grit jarvis ah say he exclaimed in the teeth of the menacing hordes stand back cancher i'll bash your face in it johnny whose boat is this shall it be whispered that i regretted his belligerency here in truth was the drama staged my drama had i only been able to realize it the good ship beached the head-hunters hemming us in on all sides the scene prepared for one of those struggles against frightful odds which i had so graphically related as an essential part of our adventures let's roll the cuss in the fancy collar proposed one of the head-hunters meaning me i'll stove your slats if you touch him said grits and then resorted to appeal i say can't you stand back and let a chap have a chance the head-hunters only jeered and what shall be said of the captain in this moment of peril shall it be told that his heart was beating wildly bumping were a better word he was trying to remember that he was the captain otherwise he must admit with shame that he too should have fled so much for romance when the test comes will he remain to fall fighting for his ship like horatius he glanced up at the hill where instead of the porch of the home where he would fain have been he beheld a wisp of a girl standing alone her hat on the back of her head her hair flying in the wind gazing intently down at him in his danger the renegade crew was nowhere to be seen there are those who demand the presence of a woman in order to be heroes give us a chance can't you he cried repeating grits's appeal in not quite such a stentorian tone as he would have liked while his hand trembled on the gunwale 
tom peters it must be acknowledged was much more of a buccaneer when it was a question of deeds for he planted himself in the way of the belligerent chief of the head-hunters who spoke with a decided brogue get out of the way said tom with a little squeak in his voice yet there he was and he deserves a tribute an unlooked-for diversion saved us from annihilation in the shape of one who had a talent for creating them we were bewilderingly aware of a girlish figure amongst us you cowards she cried you cowards lithe and fairly quivering with passion it was nancy who showed us how to face the head-hunters they gave back they would have been brave indeed if they had not retreated before such an intense little nucleus of energy and indignation ah give em a chance said their chief after a moment he even helped to push the boat towards the water but he did not volunteer to be one of those to man the petrel on her maiden voyage nor did logan's pond that wild march day greatly resembled the south seas nevertheless my eye on nancy i stepped proudly aboard and seized an oar grits and tom followed when suddenly the petrel sank considerably below the water-line as her builders had estimated it ere we fully realized this the now friendly head-hunters had given us a shove and we were off the captain, who should have been waving good-bye to his lady-love from the poop, sat down abruptly, the crew likewise, not, however, before she had heeled to the scuppers, and a half-bucket of iced water had run it. Headhunters were mere daily episodes in Gritz's existence, but water—he muttered something in Cockney that sounded like a prayer— the wind was rapidly driving us toward the middle of the pond and something cold and ticklish was seeping through the seats of our trousers we sat like statues the bright scene etched itself in my memory the bare brown slopes with which the pond was bordered the irish shanties the clothes-lines with red flannel shirts flapping in the biting wind nancy motionless on the bank the group behind her silent now impressed in spite of itself at the sight of our intrepidity the petrel was sailing stern first would any of us indeed ever see home again i thought of my father's wrath turned to sorrow because he had refused to gratify a son's natural wish and present him with a real rowboat out of the corners of our eyes we watched the water creeping around the gunwale and the very muddiness of it seemed to enhance its coldness to make the horrors of its depths more mysterious and hideous the voice of grits startled us oh god he was saying we're going to sink and i can't swim the blasted tar's giving way back here is she leaking i cried she's a-fillin up like a bath-tub he lamented slowly but perceptibly in truth the bow was rising and above the whistling of the wind i could hear his chattering as she settled 
then several things happened simultaneously an agonized cry behind me distant shouts from the shore a sudden upward lunge of the bow and the torture of being submerged inch by inch in the icy yellow water despite the splashing behind me i sat as though paralyzed until i was waist-deep and the boards turned under me and then with a spasmodic contraction of my whole being i struck out only to find my feet on the muddy bottom such was the inglorious end of the good ship petrel for she went down with all hands in little more than half a fathom of water it was not until then i realized that we had been blown clear across the pond figures were running along the shore and as tom and i emerged dragging grits between us for he might have been drowned there abjectly in the shallows we were met by a stout and bare-armed irish woman whose scanty hair i remember was drawn into a tight knot behind her head and who seized us all three as though we were a bunch of carrots come along with ye she cried shivering we followed her up the hill the spectators of the tragedy who by this time had come around the pond trailing after nancy was not among them inside the shanty into which we were thrust were two small children crawling about the floor and the place was filled with steam from a wash-tub against the wall and a boiler on the stove with a vigorous injunction to make themselves scarce the irishwoman slammed the door in the faces of the curious and ordered us to remove our clothes grits was put to bed in a corner while tom and i provided with various garments huddled over the stove there fell to my lot the red flannel shirt which i had seen on the clothesline she gave us hot coffee and was back at her wash-tub in no time at all her entire comment on a proceeding that seemed to tom and me to have certain elements of gravity being boys will be boys the final ironical touch was given the anticlimax when our rescuer turned out to be the mother of the chief of the head-hunters himself he had lingered perforce with his brothers and sister outside the cabin until dinner-time and when he came in he was meek as moses thus the ready hospitality of the poor which passed over the heads of tom and me as we ate bread and onions and potatoes with a ravenous hunger it must have been about two o'clock in the afternoon when we bade good-bye to our preserver and departed for home at first we went at a dog-trot but presently slowed down to discuss the future looming portentously ahead of us since entire concealment was now impossible the question was how complete a confession would be necessary our cases indeed were dissimilar and tom's incentive to hold back the facts was not nearly so great as mine it sometimes seemed to me in those days unjust that the peterses were able on the whole to keep out of criminal difficulties in which i was more or less continuously involved for it did not strike me that their sins were not those of the imagination the method of tom's father was the slipper he and tom understood each other while between my father and myself was a great gulf fixed 
not that tom yearned for the slipper but he regarded its occasional applications as being as inevitable as changes in the weather lying did not come easily to him and left to himself he much preferred to confess and have the matter over with i have already suggested that i had cultivated lying that weapon of the weaker party in some degree at least in self-defence tom was loyal moreover my conviction would probably deprive him for six whole afternoons of my company on which he was more or less dependent but the defence of this case presented unusual difficulties and we stopped several times to thrash them out we had been absent from dinner and doubtless by this time julia had informed tom's mother of the expedition and any one could see that her clothing had been wet so i lingered in no little anxiety behind the peter's stable while he made the investigation our spirits rose considerably when he returned to report that julia had unexpectedly been a trump having quieted his mother by the surmise that he was spending the day with his aunt fanny so far so good the problem now was to decide upon what to admit for we must both tell the same story it was agreed that we had fallen into logan's pond from a raft my suggestion well said tom the petrel hadn't proved much better than a raft after all i was in no mood to defend her this designation of the petrel as a raft was my first legal quibble the question to be decided by the court was what is a raft just as the supreme tribunal of the land has been required in later years to decide what is whiskey the thing to be concealed if possible was the building of the raft although this information was already in the possession of a number of persons whose fathers might at any moment see fit to congratulate my own on being the parent of a genius it was a risk however that had to be run and secondly since grits jarvis was contraband nothing was to be said about him i have not said much about my mother who might have been likened on such occasions to a grand jury compelled to indict yet torn between loyalty to an oath and sympathy with the defendant i went through the peters yard climbed the wire fence my object being to discover first from ella the housemaid or hannah the cook how much was known in high quarters it was hannah who as i opened the kitchen door turned at the sound and set down the saucepan she was scouring is it home ye are mercy to goodness this on beholding my shrunken costume glory be to god you're not drowned and your mother worried in her heart out so it's into the water you were i admitted it hannah i said softly what then does mother know about the boat now don't ye be wheedlin i managed to discover however that my mother did not know and surmised that the best reason why she had not been told had to do with hannah's criminal acquiescence concerning the operations in the shed i ran into the front hall and up the stairs and my mother heard me coming and met me on the landing who where have you been 
as i emerged from the semi-darkness of the stairway she caught sight of my dwindled garments of the trousers well above my ankles suddenly she had me in her arms and was kissing me passionately as she stood before me in her grey belted skirt the familiar red and white cameo at her throat her heavy hair parted in the middle in her eyes was an odd appealing look which i know now was a sign of mother love struggling with the presbyterian conscience though she inherited that conscience i have often thought she might have succeeded in casting it off or at least some of it had it not been for the fact that in spite of herself she worshipped its incarnation in the shape of my father her voice trembled a little as she drew me to the sofa beside the window tell me about what happened my son she said it was a terrible moment for me for my affections were still quiveringly alive in those days and i loved her i had for an instant an instinctive impulse to tell her the whole story south sea islands and all and i could have done it had i not beheld looming behind her another figure which represented a stern and unsympathetic authority and somehow made her suddenly of small account not that she would have understood the romance but she would have comprehended me i knew that she was powerless to save me from the wrath to come i wept it was because i hated to lie to her yet i did so fear gripped me and like some respectable criminals i have since known i understood that any confession i made would inexorably be used against me i wonder whether she knew i was lying at any rate the case appeared to be a grave one and i was presently remanded to my room to be held over for trial vividly as i write i recall the misery of the hours i have spent while awaiting sentence in the little chamber with the honeysuckle wallpaper and steel engravings of happy but dumpy children romping in the fields and groves on this particular march afternoon the weather had become mourn as the french say and i looked down sadly into the grey backyard which the wind of the morning had strewn with chips from the petrol at last when shadows were gathering in the corners of the room i heard footsteps ella appeared prim and virtuous yet a little commiserating my father wished to see me downstairs it was not the first time she had brought that summons and always her manner was the same the scene of my trials was always the sitting-room lined with grim books in their walnut cases and my father sat like a judge behind the big desk where he did his work when at home oh the distance between us at such an hour i entered as delicately as agag and the expression in his eye seemed to convict me before i could open my mouth hugh he said your mother tells me that you have confessed to going without permission to logan's pond where you embarked on a raft and fell into the water the slight emphasis he contrived to put on the word raft sent a colder shiver down my spine than the iced water had done what did he know or was this mere suspicion 
too late now at any rate to plead guilty it was a sort of a raft sir i stammered a sort of a raft repeated my father where may i ask did you find it i i didn't exactly find it sir ah said my father it was the moment to glance meaningly at the jury the prisoner gulped you didn't exactly find it then will you kindly explain how you came by it well sir we i put it together have you any objection to stating hugh in plain english that you made it no sir i suppose you might say that i made it or that it was intended for a rowboat here was the time to appeal to force a decision as to what constituted a rowboat perhaps it might be called a rowboat sir i said abjectly or that in direct opposition to my wishes and commands in forbidding you to have a boat to spend your money foolishly and wickedly on a whim you constructed one secretly in the woodshed took out a part of the back partition thus destroying property that did not belong to you and had the boat carted this morning to logan's pond i was silent utterly undone evidently he had specific information there are certain expressions that are at times more than mere figures of speech and now my father's wrath seemed literally towering it added visibly to his stature hugh he said in a voice that penetrated to the very corners of my soul i utterly fail to understand you i cannot imagine how a son of mine a son of your mother who is the very soul of truthfulness and honour can be a liar oh the terrible emphasis he put on that word nor is it as if this were a new tendency i have punished you for it before your mother and i have tried to do our duty by you to instil into you christian teaching but it seems wholly useless i confess that i am at a loss how to proceed you seem to have no conscience whatever no conception of what you owe to your parents and your god you not only persistently disregard my wishes and commands but you have for many months been leading a double life facing me every day while you were secretly and continually disobeying me i shudder to think where this determination of yours to have what you desire at any price will lead you in the future it is just such a desire that distinguishes wicked men from good i will not linger upon a scene the very remembrance of which is painful to this day i went from my father's presence in disgrace in an agony of spirit that was overwhelming to lock the door of my room and drop face downward on the bed to sob until my muscles twitched for he had indeed put into me an awful fear the greatest horror of my boyish imagination was a wicked man was i as he declared utterly depraved and doomed in spite of myself to be one there came a knock at my door ella with my supper 
i refused to open and sent her away to fall on my knees in the darkness and pray wildly to a god whose attributes and character were sufficiently confused in my mind on the one hand was the stern despotic monarch of the westminster catechism whom i addressed out of habit the father who condemned a portion of his children from the cradle was i one of those who he had decreed before i was born must suffer the tortures of the flames of hell putting two and two together what i had learned in sunday school and gathered from parts of dr pound's sermons and the intimation of my father that wickedness was within me like an incurable disease was not mine the logical conclusion what then was the use of praying my supplications ceased abruptly and my ever-ready imagination stirred to its depths beheld that awful scene of the last day the darkness such as sometimes creeps over the city in winter when the jaundiced smoke falls down and we read at noonday by gaslight i beheld the tortured faces of the wicked gathered on the one side and my mother on the other amongst the blessed gazing across the gulf at me with yearning and compassion strange that it did not strike me that the sight of the condemned whom they had loved in life would have marred if not destroyed the happiness of the chosen about to receive their crowns and harps what a theology that made the creator and preserver of all mankind thus illogical end of section two